Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today alongside Coniston Water with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Oh, hello, David. Crikey, when I started this journey, everything was shrouded in cloud. Mm. I came past Blencathra and yes, that was shrouded in cloud. Went down Thirlmere. And suddenly I saw a glimmer of light. And I got down to Coniston, and the place is almost clear blue sky. It's wonderful. This is the contrast of the Lake District, isn't it? It is, and contrast in the weather in a week, isn't it? We had three days' worth of storms, uh, and then it's improved, and we're now just lovely springtime weather. Birds in the background, as you say, blue skies, a fresh old breeze. The clue to today's podcast is in our location, Mark. We are midway along one of Cumbria's great trails. Indeed. Well, we're probably about a third of the way north from Elverston, where the Cumbria Way begins. Uh, It's a route that runs south to north up to Carlisle, and we'll get a flavour of it beside the shores of Coniston Water. Wonderful, yeah. This is one of the magic sections of it, really, isn't it? It's pastoral landscape, lots of woods along the shores of Coniston. And actually, I think this is probably going to be the last few days before the tourists come back in droves. So still relatively quiet in the National Park. Uh, And who's our guest today, Mark? I believe an old friend of yours. Oh, yes. I wouldn't say old, but... (laughs) Paddy, I've known him for years. He's somebody who's got this insatiable adoration in walking and sharing his joy and knowledge of it and he just absolutely oozes it. I have to have a button to stop him talking because he loves talking about the outdoors. This is Paddy Dillon, uh, well known to many of our listeners I'm sure as a prolific chronicler of both backpacking and also long distance walks uh, not only in this country but all over Europe and the world. And Mark, just before we set off, can you give us a geographical pinpoint about where we are now and where we're going to on our brief sojourn along the Cumbria Way? Well, we're at uh, Sunnybank, Torva Common. I can just see from where I'm standing the rippling waters of Coniston Water and Parkermore, uh, Nibthwaite, Parkermore, where we were with John Atkinson and Maria Benjamin some um, a year ago, probably now. A lovely, lovely setting, and we're heading up the shore, the western shore of the lake, beautifully wooded by Coniston Old Hall up to the village of Coniston. Fabulous. Let's go and make our first strides along this walk, and let's go and meet Paddy Dillon. That's a squeaky kissing gate, Paddy. Wow, <laughs> typical of the Cumbria Way. Can you tell me a little bit about where the Cumbria Way runs and a little bit about its character and your connection with it? Well, it starts in Ulverston, which just happens to be where I've been living for the past 30 years. So when I go out for a short stroll out into the countryside, it's quite likely I'll follow part of the Cumbria Way to start with. Um, but in its entirety, it runs all the way from Ulverston to Coniston, Langdale, over to Borrowdale, through Keswick, over the Skidder Fells, to Coldbeck, and all the way to Carlisle. That's 70 miles in total, taking about five days to a week to complete. And the scenery sort of builds up gradually from Ulverston until you start getting closer to the fells, and then you're sort of weaving between the fells. It doesn't go over the tops, it goes through the gaps and through the valleys. And then, of course, there's a gradual unwinding at the end where you get onto the flat ground to finish in Carlisle. Fascinating. It's a lovely journey. There's so many elements that, as country striders know very well, and, of course, our last episode was at Bacchus Skidder, so we sense that magical wildness there. So who created the Cumbria Way? What's its heritage? It was something that was put together by the Ramblers Association, particularly the Lake District 
area group um, back in the 70s, so it's got a long history behind it. But the strange thing about the Lake District and long-distance walks is that they are not waymarked through the National Park. Now, that's a, a decision made by the park authorities, that they don't want specific routes waymarking through the Lake District. But it's a route that's been there for decades. It's a route that's grown in popularity. And to my mind, it's an ideal introduction to the Lake District. If somebody's never been before, a bit hesitant maybe about embarking on a big climb up into the fells, they can try the Cumbria Way, they can see the fells to either side, and then assess for the future whether a bit of fell walking might be a good idea the next time. How popular do you feel it is? Well, living where I do, um, in Ulverston, I'm quite likely to see people if I'm out in town, and especially if I'm in the car park where it starts. Every couple of days or so, somebody's going to be walking out of town on that route. I'd say that it's popular, but not hugely popular like some trails are, where you could almost guarantee there will be a crowd of people starting every day. With the Cumbria Way, it sort of dribs and drabs. Maybe every other day they'll be starting. But it's certainly not one of these routes where, you know, you could camp on it for a week and never see anyone. We're on a place called Sunnybank, and would you believe it, it's sunny. And of course, not only is it sunny, but it's the morning of April the 1st. You were telling us before we started about April Fool's and then a local character who played into the spirit of April Fool's Day. I believe the old guy used to live at Windermere many, many years ago, and um, he used to turn up at strange places on April the 1st, often armed with things like a, a clipboard containing a spurious petition. Um, I gather he showed up once in Barrow in Furness with this clipboard, asking people to um, sign his petition against Concord landing at Walney Airfield. And um, he used to be such a character. He used to turn up on April the 1st regularly and pull these little stunts. Um, you know, the, the world's a poorer place without people like that. Yes. I think there was one as well where he was um, seen on the promenade at Bowness with his clipboard and I was trying to get people concerned about the, uh, the fact that they were going to move Belle Isle to a different part of Windermere. He'd convinced people it was on a mooring platform held down by cables and that somebody had a plan to move the island to a different part of Windermere. But whatever he did was guaranteed to wind people up and get them infuriated about things that were just there for his own entertainment. And you actually had a smart idea for the hoding Ulverston, didn't you, Paddy? Well, I mean, if it wasn't April the 1st, I would be at home and I would always be thinking, why don't I pull an April Fool's stunt in Ulverston one day, mock up a planning notice saying that there's going to be a zip wire installed from the horde down into the town centre, plaster it on telegraph poles, sit back at home and let the fury unwind. <laughs> Very popular. Not. <laughs> Gosh, the bird song is absolutely brilliant. Skylarks, you name it, they're all there. We've come round the corner and we've got a great view down onto the lake now with uh, Parkermore beyond. Uh, the wooded slopes on the east shore of Coniston Water. Below us is a little house set in the trees. Now, there is some significance to that. Yes, um, many years ago, a Romanian inventor by the name of George Constantinescu basically retired to this area at Sunnybank and he kept a workshop going because he just could not stop inventing things. He had an impressive list of patents which um, included the mechanism that allowed you during wartime with a warplane to fire a machine gun through the blades of a propeller without destroying the propeller. He was in great demand during the wartime years as an inventor to come up with something that would aid the war effort. But uh, in his retirement, he, he settled here at Sunnybank and um, maintained a little workshop. He used to be plagued by the noise of motorboats passing his house. And he is reputed to have tried to invent a machine that would actually pelt 
noisy motorboats with rotten tomatoes. Now, whether that's true or not, I have no idea. But one time when the Coniston Regatta was in full swing and there were noisy motorboats everywhere, he turned up with an electric motorboat that was absolutely silent. So he made his point there. But I think he lived there till 1965. That's when he died. His widow lived there some years afterwards. Well, I think it's bad time we've tested your striding capacity. There's always a colleague just come by so that we're not alone. This is the, the thing on this trail that you do meet people. Uh, it's just chasing after a stick. Okay. <laughs> we'll chase after the stick ourselves. Well, we've come to the sh actual shores of the lake now by a jetty, looking a bit decrepit at the far end of it. There's absolutely no craft on the lake whatsoever. And yet the gondola does come down to this point when it's running. All you've got is the sounds of nature. Paddy, you're one of the unique people in this country to have walked all the national trails, both England and Scotland. Now, why don't I give you a little challenge? I did this in advance, I gave you a little bit of a warning. Could you describe each one of them in one word? One word I would struggle. Can I have two or three for each one? Okay, we'll be a little bit lax. <laughs> if I worked all the way from the most southerly to the most northerly, this is basically how they would unwind in my mind. Southwest Coast Path, the best ever coastal path. Um, North Downs Way and South Downs Way, I always walk them together for some reason. I'll walk one and then I'll walk the other. So it's a case of compare and contrast. Um, the Ridgeway, I just love that long trail feel to the Ridgeway. The Cotswold Way is just beautiful. Um, Pedder's Way and Norfolk Coast, two trails for the price of one. Yorkshire Wolds Way, lovely and quiet. Cleveland Way, that's a hard one because again I always feel it's two parts. You've got the inland moorland part and you've got the coast. So it doesn't come in just one word, again it's like a two-part trail. Pennine Bridle Way, that's what I call an ongoing project. It's getting there. Pennine Way is the classic. It's the one that was on my doorstep that I grew up with and I'll always love it. Hadrian's Wall Path is just pure history and heritage. If I go to Wales, Pembrokeshire Coast Path, just stunning coastal scenery. Offers Dyke Path, again, is one of these historical frontier trails. Glindor's Way, the quiet one. You'll meet maybe one other person walking that. If I go to Scotland, Southern Upland Way is in all ways a classic coast-to-coast. Coast. Uh, Speyside Way, I can only think it's a whiskey trail. So many single malt distilleries on it. West Highland Way is beautiful scenery, epic mountain scenery all the way along it. And the Great Glen Way is a lovely easy way through the highlands. That's a wonderful summation. If I wanted to pin you down to three that meant the most to you, what would they be? I think, first and foremost, the Pennine Way. It's because that's where I was born and reared, is on the doorstep of the Pennine Way. It's a place where, growing up as a teenager, I could just walk out of town, link with the Pennine Way, follow it north or south for one, two, three days, come back home again afterwards. Um, so the Pennine Way... It, it will always, always have a, a place in my heart. I, I used to say it's, I have a soft spot for it, but in actual fact, given that it's boggy country, it's really the Pennine Way has a soft spot for me. Um, one, man, one man in his bog, <laughs> that's what you are. Exactly. Um, the southwest coast path, in terms of coastline, you will never find another stretch of British coastline that is as scenic and as accessible and yet still has all the services and facilities to make life easy. You can go anywhere else in Britain, you'll get much more dramatic scenery but you won't get the services. 
you'll get all the services, but there'll be no scenery. But with the southwest coast path, you get everything in one great package. And then another one I like, simply because I have experience of it as a young teenager, is the Cleveland Way. I once put a tent on a campsite. I didn't carry it. I wasn't a backpacker then. I just wanted to camp on a campsite with my parents in an adjacent chalet, keeping an eye on me. But while I was camped there, one evening a man walked up and he dropped an enormous pack on the ground. It was like a small earthquake. And he put a tent up and I just watched in awe as he cooked himself a meal and turned in for the night. When I got up in the morning, he'd gone. And then the campsite owner said to me, he's walking that Cleveland Way, you know. It's a long-distance path. And I said, Cleveland Way? I'd never heard of anything like that. But yes, that was my first introduction to a trail and to the notion of backpacking. I have no idea who that guy was, but he set a spark off in me. There are lots and lots of trails named trails all over Britain. In fact, people are creating trails all the time. Is there one particular one that you feel might merit the status of a national trail that isn't one at the moment? I think most people would say the coast-to-coast walk. And to a certain extent, I'd say, yes, it should be a national trail. The problem is, is that when national trails were set up as like a rolling project... The idea was that you would identify a place as being suitable to have a national trail in it and then you had to prove that instituting a national trail would actually be of economic benefit to that area. The trouble with the coast to coast is it's already there. It's already of economic benefit to the area. Therefore, it can't be designated as a national trail and that's all it comes down to. But yeah, everybody thinks, why isn't the Coast to Coast Walk a national trail? Well, that's why. And it, it never can be because of that. You've been walking national trails or trails since the early 70s, I would imagine. So you've experienced the cultural changes that have gone on and the economic impacts of these trails and how they service the walker differently. So how has things changed in your perspective? Well, if I look back to my first trail, which would be the Pennine Way, that was a rough, tough trail. And it was almost expected that you were going to do it as a backpacker, carrying your tent and sleeping bag. Now, fair enough, there were youth hostels and they weren't expensive. But at the same time, most people would be doing this as self-contained backpackers, carrying camping equipment, cooking their own food in the field. Um, And then you would get the hostel, as people would say, oh, they're taking it easy, you know, they've got the money they can afford to hostel. It's completely different now because a lot of people, when you walk these trails, you'll still see me with my backpacking equipment, you'll see a few others, but the bulk of them are actually carrying very small packs and they're having all their other gear transported from hotel to hotel. And, I mean, I can't knock it if it works for them, but they've said to me, listen, we've got high-powered professional jobs. The last thing we want to be doing when we're going on holiday is worrying about arrangements. We just want someone else to worry about that and we'll pay them for it. So that's the biggest change I've seen is that people are willing to throw big money at completing a trail. It's not a sort of, you know, almost like a matter of survival as it used to be, carrying a tent in all weathers. It's not like that anymore. People are looking for comfort, they're looking for quality, and they're looking for all the meals to be prepared for them, and they are willing to pay that price. A long-distance walk has a characteristic about it that you might say differs from your local ramble, the place that you walk familiarly in. So you walk a long-distance path, it gives you a contrast. And what is the lure of that? To me, it's a case of being out, staying out, and constantly finding variety in the landscape. Um, And also finding all the history, the heritage, the wildlife, everything that comes... Unlike, say, just going out for a three-hour walk and then going back home, you are out there all the time. You've got the time to watch the sun go down. You've got the time to listen for bats fluttering around. You've got the time to watch the sun come up in the morning. You've all day 
available to you to complete your walk and that means that you're just wide open to the experiences whereas if you're just going out for what you might call a quick hit of a walk you know I'll nip out this afternoon and do a couple of hours you're back at home again and then you're engrossed in all the things that come with being at home once you're out and staying out it's just a completely different life almost um you know even if you're going from hotel to hotel it's a different room each night um if you're camping you can be halfway up a hillside and have just that wonderful view from the open door of the tent of the sunset in the sun rising and um, just being part of that landscape um but i think that basically is how it comes down is that the longer you are out there the more you are a part of the whole experience that's just the word i was thinking you are part of the living landscape i tend to think about many of these trails they have special days on them can you pinpoint three particular day length stretches that are memorable to you I would start with the Pennine Way and I would actually say that the very highest part of the Pennine Way to me is the best. It's going from Dufton to Garrigill over the top of Knockfell, the Dunfells and Crossfell. I just love the fact that there is nothing up there. I mean, there's a big weather station on Great Dunfell, but apart from that, it's one of the most empty parts of England I've ever seen. It's also very high, very exposed, very remote. And I just love that just sense of nothingness up there. Um, I've done it in all weathers. I've done it in the summer when it's an absolute joy. I've done it in the winter when, according to the stats from the weather station, um, the temperature plus the wind chill took me down to minus 23. I'm not joking. I walked and I walked and I walked. I took two photographs because anything else seemed to put me in peril of my life. Um, but I just love that stretch. If I come to a route like the Southwest Coast Path, which I absolutely adore, it's the part with all the granite headlands going between St Ives and Pendine. Um, I, I just love the great big chunky blocky granite headlands Gernard. the sea beating into them Gernard's head and yeah. Zenner. yeah oh I love that area magic <laughs> and then another one and this is more for the heritage than anything else is the middle bit of Hadrian's Wall where you're on that roller coaster and the wall is just going up and down up and down passing all the little forts and and mile castles and um I just love it. I mean, it also coincides with the Pennine Way. So if I'm walking the Pennine Way, I get to see that. And if I'm walking the Hadrian's Wall Path, I get to see it. So, yeah, those have been my three best ones. Yeah, yeah. Fabulous. Anyway, it's been a wonderful moment to stop here. You can hear the lapping waters and the sun is just as warm and gorgeous. Well, it's getting warmer. We'll walk a few more strides. I think we deserve a few more strides. Right. Where we go? We've been walking through the gorse, Paddy. It's uh, quite interesting how intimate and tall it is at, just at that point. We're still beside the shores. You can hear the lapping waters, which is a lovely serenade to our conversation. Underneath our feet, there's something rather distinctive. Can you describe it to us, Paddy? Yeah, it's basically, it looks like slag, and that's exactly what it is. Um, we're on the site of a medieval bloomery, where they would have smelted iron by the most primitive processes, which involved bringing the iron ore from wherever it was located, which would be up in the fells, to somewhere where they had enough fuel to be able to process it, which would be the nearest woodland, which just happens to be beside the lake here. It's also a breezy spot. So you've got the wood, you light the fire, the wind gives you the extra impetus to get the heat, you start adding the iron ore, and eventually small amounts of iron will trickle out and it will just be normal cast iron or pig iron and what's left is this bubbly slag underfoot which when you pick it up you can feel the weight of it it's still got iron in it because it wasn't a particularly efficient process the further south you get from here the more you start getting into the um, 
early years of the Industrial Revolution and the small-scale rural ironworks. And then when you get to Barrow, you're into the major part of the Industrial Era with massive Bessemer converters and working away much bigger iron deposits around Dalton and Lindell. But here, it was small-scale, very poor quality iron. So there's no actual built structure. It was just a pile of iron ore and wood and we're just seeing the remains of it. That's fascinating about the bloomers. That you've, you've actually got a, a connection with this landscape uh, from the days before, in fact, you were writing guidebooks. You lived and worked in this area. Wasdale Head? The first time I actually got a job in the Lake District involved working virtually every job there was to work at Wasdale Head, apart from manage the place. I was sort of jack of all trades there. And it came about um, because in those days, back in the, the late 70s, I remember seeing at the back of every single issue of the Great Outdoors magazine a little advert that said, Staff Wanted, Wastwater Hotel. And I thought to myself, well, you know, they always seem to be looking for staff, let's give them a ring gave him a ring, ended up walking all the way from Coniston to Wasdale Head for the interview. The interview went along the lines of, great stuff, can you start on Monday? And then walked all the way back to Coniston to gather my worldly possessions and back over, got a lift back round to, to work there for nine months. But working in Wasdale for nine months means you've got some hefty fells right on the doorstep for those precious days off. But it was also an interesting time because I worked right through a winter and that's when a lot of climbing clubs and rambling clubs had their Christmas dinners and so you would get them rocking up one after the other, the Derbyshire Pennine Club, the Felham Rock, even Lytham St Anne's Club, Barrow Ramblers. They'd all have their little weekend when they'd turn up and then you'd get the celebrities would come in in his twilight years, Walter Poucher turned up, the famous landscape photographer. Um, but he really was on his last legs at that point, but still an absolute perfectionist. For all he spent a weekend there, for all that the weather was glorious, he declared that it was a complete waste of time because he got much better pictures of Wasdale in his earlier years. But it was interesting to see him, even as he'd sit down for a dinner, Everything had to be perfect. No frills, so the candle lantern had to go, the Melba toast basket had to go. When his main meal was delivered to him, the side salad had to be removed. No fuss, no trimmings, just the plain, absolute, this is how I want it, this is how I'll take it kind of guy. But, uh, yeah, they don't make them like that anymore. He had an interesting job in his career. He had two jobs. One was he was an outstanding landscape photographer and he also worked for Yardley, creating cosmetics and perfumes, which he would cheerfully try out upon himself. So you'd see him with his face covered in white powder and garish lipstick and eyeliner. Um, it looked bizarre for a guy who was in his 80s, but uh, that was his job and he was testing the products out on himself. <laughs> After the Wasdale Head job, you actually applied for a job here on the gondola. What was the story there? I was looking for a job and um, I noticed this advert. It was National Trust were advertising they wanted a purser to work on the gondola to collect the fares. And I thought, I could do that. I was handling money at Wasdale Head. I'm sure I could handle money on the gondola. And then I noticed to my dismay they wanted an 18-year-old. I was 21. So I lied about my age and I got through to the interview. They asked me what particular qualities I could bring to the job of purser. And I said, well, unlike your previous purser, which would have been decades before, I said, I won't drop the bag of threepenny bits over the side. Um, but they spotted that I was actually 21 and that was the end of the interview. Why were the threepenny bits in the water? I think what you have to remember about the gondola was it was completely rebuilt in the 1980s. It had spent many decades sunk in Coniston water. So you have to go right back to the olden days when it last had a crew. And in the olden days, the fares were in threepenny bits. 
Um, and it was a clumsy-handed purser who actually dropped the bag of threepenny bits overboard. Soon after that, the gondola was out of commission. It was deliberately sunk in an effort to preserve its metal hull. Um, but by the time it was raised from the lake, the hull had virtually disintegrated. It had to be built from scratch. I think the only thing that really survived was the snake emblem on the front. Do we know where those coins might be? Because somebody with the proper equipment could get a huge sum of money there, maybe a whole pound's worth. <laughs> They're still in the lake. Nobody ever got the bag of threepenny bits out. I mean, in its time, various things have gone down underwater in, in Coniston Water. Malcolm Campbell's bluebird went down. It was years before that was raised, and then uh, Campbell's body was raised as well. Um, but the threepenny bits are still down there, oh. waiting for someone to find them. Treasure trove. Let's walk on a little. Having emerged from the woodlands and come through the Raymond Priestley Outdoor Centre, we've come onto the National Trust shoreline. I'm looking west and you can see the very distinctive headland summit, the rounded top of Coniston Old Man with Walnut Scar to the left of it, to the south, and further to the north, Weatherlam. So this shore is pastures, trees, holiday homes of various sorts, caravans, on the east shore, very wooded. Paddy, you perhaps can describe the buildings that you can see on there and their relationship to Ruskin and Swallows and Amazons, maybe? Right, yeah, well, the biggest building you can see and the brightest and lightest in colouring is Brantwood, which was the home of John Ruskin. Now, when he moved to this area and took over that property, his secretary came with him, who was uh, a man called William Gersham Collingwood. He lived nearby. You can see the next building along. There's actually a small huddle of buildings there. Collingwood lived at Lane Head. Another building next to it was called Thurston. And then one closer to the lake is called Bank Ground. Now, Bank Ground, I stayed there um, with my family just before Christmas. Um, that's a place associated with the Swallows and Amazons. And, of course, those who know the story will know that the lake that they sailed on is a combination between Coniston Water and Windermere. And they used to refer to Coniston Old Man by a different name, Features on Kanchen the lake. Kanchenjunga, was it? Kanchenjunga, that That's was Coniston it. Old Man. If you look way to the southern end of Coniston Water, you can just about make out the shape of Peel Island, which became Wildcat Island in the stories. The young children that it was based on there used to sail on the lake and Arthur Ransom used to visit them. And the story just appeared in his mind, if you like, and uh, he created this landscape, he created the adventures for these children to have. Um, but yeah, they, there's a big difference between these uh, like holiday sites on this side of the lake, the campsite, the caravan site, and the old buildings on the other side of the lake and the history, heritage and the people used to live in them. Uh, you mentioned Thurston, because this used to be called Thurston Mere. Yeah, this was Thurston Mere, which is uh, based on the old Norse name, Thorstein, Thorstein's lake. Um, so somebody called Thorstein, a Viking, may have settled in this area and um, put his name and his stamp on the place. And this was, like every part of the Lake District, a Viking's stronghold. You know, the Vikings came, they took the whole of Cumbria, they wiped out all traces of the uh, pre-Viking names for features and they put their own names on. That's where we get Dales, Thwaites and all these things are all basically Norse place names. The Vikings tend to be, a lot of them came from Ireland, I gather. They moved around a lot. When they went to Iceland, it was actually Viking males who went to Iceland. They couldn't convince any of the women folk to follow them, so they captured Scottish and Irish Celts. They captured their women and took them with them. So Icelanders, for all that they speak the purest form of Norse, are actually a sort of a mongrel race of Vikings and Celts. You mentioned right early on this experience of walking or encountering the Cleveland Way and this guy who came and pitched his tent and disappeared in the morning and somebody said, who was walking the Cleveland Way? And you thought, camping? What's all that about? However, 
it's become an integral part of your life. In those very early days as a young teenager, I understood camping to mean you put your tent down on a campsite and you enjoyed life to the full. The idea of taking that tent away to another campsite, a day's march away, and pitching it again. I'd never heard of anyone doing that. So that first person who pitched his tent next to mine and was gone the next morning, following something called the Cleveland Way, that opened my eyes. And I used to pester my parents, you know, can we do that? But they were not the sort of people who would walk a long distance route. In the end, it was down to me. I think within two or three years, I'd figured out if I'm going to do this, I'm going to have to do it myself. So it was me who loaded up my rucksack with all the wrong things, um, went about it the wrong way, and in four weeks, I learned more about backpacking than I have in the rest of my life. And there's nothing like doing things wrong and learning from it. But by the time I'd done that, I realised there was a right way to do things and there was the right sort of kit you should have. And I refined my kit. I'm still refining my kit to this day. The whole technology of backpacking and tents and gear, it's transformed in the last 40 years to now it's almost feather light. That's right. There is a big drive now. People want to go lightweight backpacking and then you get those who want to go ultra lightweight when I remember my first backpack, I have no idea how much it weighed. It was heavy. It was many, many pounds. These days, you tend to weigh things in kilos. And the ideal weight for what they call a base pack, that is all your backpacking gear, but not your food and water, would be considerably less than 10 kilos. Wow. And once you put food and water in, anything goes. If you're only out for a weekend, it won't weigh much. If you're out for a week and you can't resupply, then that food and water is going to be very, very heavy. I mean, water in most places you can get out of the stream, it's fine. In some places where it's dry and arid, you have to carry all that water. And every litre of water is another kilo, and that adds up. The great joy is I've done treks that last as long as... 10 days between resupplies, 10 days of trekking food is actually quite heavy. But after 10 days, you haven't got any of that food. And it's remarkable how little the pack weighs at the end of that. Um, so yeah, you eat your way through, your pack gets lighter. We're in a phase now where people are inevitably going to be coming to this area who are newbies, uh, unversed in all that experience that you've got. What do you think we could be doing in that country code to advise people, give people the information to do the right sort of things? I'm not sure that an actual written country code is good enough right now because you're dealing with people who won't even be looking for that information. I think all we can do is, is to set an example. If you see litter next to somebody who's having a picnic, just casually pick it up and pop it in a bag and then carry on. And... Um, They'll think, you know, oh, why have they done that? It's small things like that can make people do a lot more thinking than ranting and raving at them, preaching at them, saying, have you never heard of the country code? I think we're going to have to set an example as much as possible, you know, just make it plain to people that there's a right and a wrong way to do this without forcing it down their throats. Um, but there are a lot of people who... You know, given time, they'll appreciate the countryside as much as we have, but at the moment, they're coming into it fresh and they maybe don't understand that when they leave rubbish around, it's harmful to wildlife and to livestock. It's unsightly for other people. It's something we're just going to have to sort of work away at it. Over the next few years, I think it's going to take that long, yeah. We've heard lots of stories of people setting up camp willy-nilly, trashing the place, setting fire to things, leaving horrendous mess behind. Proper wild camping is when you can go out, you pick your camping place, you pitch your tent, usually in the evening, you're gone early in the morning, and if anybody comes along in the next hour or so, they would have absolutely no idea that anyone had actually pitched a tent there. That's true wild camping. And that's the sort I love, you know. I mean, we're coming up to a campsite. I don't mind staying on campsites, but I much prefer 
just staying in the middle of nowhere. Give me the middle of a moor or halfway up a fell rather than a field with a toilet block and showers and a little shop. As they say, take only photographs, leave only footprints, but in your case, don't even leave the footprints. Definitely not. Even when you've put the tent down on a, a nice handy bit of grass, if you unpitch the tent, wrap everything up and look at the grass, maybe the grass is flat, scuff it back upwards with your feet, then leave. Yes. <laughs> and if you see litter there when you arrive, pick that up. Pick it up. Backpacking like you have done, you've done all sorts of things. But here in the Lake District, have you done anything extraordinary? Uh, many years ago, me and a friend set out to backpack all of Wainwright's fells, all 214 of them, in 28 days. Wow. And, OK, we used a couple of hostels and we had a couple of deliveries of food brought to us, which saved popping to the shop. But basically, we were carrying our packs with our tents and sleeping bags over the fells and we would have a rough idea of how far we'd walk that day, 15 or 20 miles, and then pitch the tent and we could be in a valley, we could be on top of a fell. I think our highest pitch was actually between Skiddo Little Man and Skiddo itself with a wire fence for protection against the wind and then some of our other pictures were just in very remote places. We did actually, I'll tell you where we did camp, at um, the the gap between Great Gable and Kirkfell. Beckhead. Beckhead. We'll move on a little bit further, we're making yeah. Rather slow progress, oh, uh, yeah, physically, but... Don't want to miss the last bus, do we? <laughs> <laughs> Even if it is a minibus. <laughs> it's literally coming past Connorson Old Hall Farm there with its magnificent chimneys, which, off mic you mentioned, they look like Battersea Power Station. They're quite the largest chimney stacks that I know of in Cumbria. It's a wonderful building with a great hall effect up the ramp there. You could imagine it being opened up and turned into quite a cultural icon in mid a campsite and so on by the lake. We've got a magnificent outlook here as we come into the pasture just beyond the hall. Coniston Old Man, Swirlhow, Weatherlam and the, the, the Udale Fells there, the craggy outcrop there that uh, John Ruskin studied in great detail and got the school children really absorbed in his polymath outlook of everything. If you like the great outdoors, this is a fabulous place. It brings me around to this notion that you are currently president of the Backpackers Club. The lockdowns have impacted on genuine backpackers. How do you see things moving forward? Well, it's going to be gradual, you know. I mean, as of today, to go out and stay out away from home is still illegal, so we just have to wait that bit longer. Um, the first glimmer comes in April the 12th when self-catering is allowed. Now, in terms of backpacking, to my mind, that covers wild camping because you're self-contained, there's only you in your household, and putting a tent in the wilds should count as much as staying in a self-catering holiday let. So my plan is certainly to be looking at the possibility of being able to get away from April the 12th. I have a big backlog of trails I need to do, um, books I need to update, so I'm looking to get away as soon as I can. I am aware of the fact that some people will be a lot more reluctant to just leap out there and start doing things. They'll maybe wait until the summer, see how things progress. But I would imagine that there's really nothing to stop anyone getting out and enjoying the outdoors backpacking and long distance walking by the main summer holiday. It's going to be busy, that's the only thing. I think even campsites may be full, let alone hotels, B&Bs and hostels. And then again, while camping, if you're a good wild camper, you'll find an empty space in the middle of nowhere where you'll neither be seen nor heard. So I think it'll, it'll come back this year. People will get the confidence to get out and about again. But when it comes to what I would call the new intake, there's a lot of young people coming into this sort of uh, way of exploring the outdoors who are basically getting all their information from YouTube videos and social media. There's a lot to be said for them joining groups like the Ramblers, the Backpackers Club, where there are people in there who've been doing this sort of thing for decades 
who have the knowledge, the experience, can advise about kit, where to go, where to stay. And I would hope that some of them would, you know, take up on that. Well, it's been a fantastic little journey we've been on. We mightn't have been backpacking, but we've been all around your wonderful world, which is really the great outdoors that beckons in Britain. Talking about uh, your instinctive responses to questions, we always have quick-fire questions. What was your first Lakeland memory? The Langdale Pikes. Climbing them via Pavey Arc and scree running, which you shouldn't do now, scree running down from Piker Stickle uh, back into Mickledon. Do you know, that was the same as me. I went up Jack's Rake and I ran down the screes, the South Screes, <laughs> and I climbed on Raven Crag. So we were very much a match. Yeah. I was about a dozen years ahead of you. <laughs> what is your favourite fell? Oh, I have challenged people with this and then I've taken them up Castle Crag in Borrowdale and said, now what's your favourite fell? And they've always said Castle Crag in Borrowdale. I think it's just that notion that you're not expecting a tiny little fell to be so interesting and absorbing. And when you get to the top of it, for reasonably little effort, you can look round and see all these magnificent higher fells all around you that you haven't had to climb. Um, yes. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's the perfect solution. Yeah, it bestows everything on a plate. <laughs> Magic. Wainwright or Wordsworth? Ah, uh, Wainwright. Favourite Lakeland food? Ooh, now then. Um, I love that grass-made gingerbread with all its crumbly bits. It's worth queuing up for with the rest <laughs> of the world. Yeah, very much a queuing business, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Have you got a favourite view? I think the last time I was at Coniston Old Man, which we're looking at now, was about the best experience I've ever had from the top of a fell. It was a day of a cloud inversion. Every peak in the Lake District was above the cloud. And that was just a couple of weeks ago. Magic. So I've wasted all my life for that. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. It's like islands on a sea, a sea yeah. of white. Amazing sight. If you could take one Lakeland book to a desert island, which one might it be? Ooh, even though I don't use them as guidebooks, I've always admired the Wainwright series, but of course it's a seven-volume series. Um, so if I can't take all seven, I'd just have to take one. But yeah, I'd love to look at them over and over just to see how they're all laid out in pen and ink instead of being typeset and computer-generated. It's fabulous artwork. And people are always looking for colour now and for really sort of classy design, but this is just like proper handwritten stuff. I, I mean, the first time I saw them, I, I was just amazed at them. I went and bought the entire set way back in the 1970s. I've still got them. I've never, ever used them to plan a route because I'm a map man, first and foremost. I'll take a map and plan my route. But I've always admired them for the way they were just put together. <laughs> Absolutely. You're just like me. A map is all you need. What would be your perfect Lakeland day? Perfect Lakeland day, I suppose, would be uh, to find someone of, of similar, you know, outlook and temperament, um, climb a lovely fell, uh, probably do a horseshoe route um, to get that all-round view, and then come down to some really nice little tea shop that does magnificent cakes and, you know, speciality coffees. <laughs> if you were the Prime Minister for a day... What one thing would you do to safeguard the landscapes of Cumbria? I'm afraid I'd be rather radical. I think there are too many car parks, there's too much traffic on the road, the bus services have been chopped back to a mere shadow of what they used to be when I first walked here. I'd be digging up the car parks and planting trees and I'd find better ways of getting people in and out of this area than clogging the place up with, with vehicles. The summer... That's approaching rapidly at this point. I have very little intention of being around in July and August in the Lake District. Would you condone a congestion charge and having free public transport that gets people around better? That would work. That would, I suppose, be a less radical solution than mine of digging up the car parks and planting trees. <laughs> so when the final day comes and uh, some friends gather, or where would you like your last resting place to be? I'm not being funny, but I have said to my family that should I pop my clogs on some remote mountain overseas, if it's going to be a huge hassle and expense to get me body repatriated, 
save the money and leave me where I am. Um, but then again, if I happen to pop my clogs at home and end up being cremated, I mean, I'd be as happy with my ashes being in a plant pot as anywhere else. I, I, I don't have a particular tie to any particular hill, but should anyone see fit to scatter me to the winds from a hill, I would not object to it. Paddy Dillon, you have been an utter joy to be with today. It's been a special pleasure and thank you for joining us on Country Stride. You're welcome, Mark, and it's been a great pleasure walking with you today. Journey's end, and we're actually doing a final recording in a place we've been to before. We're in front of John Ruskin's absolutely lovely uh, memorial stone and grave here. And it's been a lovely wonder, Mark. Oh, yes, it's been wonderful. I have to say I love Paddy and his enthusiasm. His books, his diversity of appreciation of landscapes is just infectious. Yeah, lovely to do that walk. Uh, I haven't done that for many years, actually. A lovely kind of wooded part of the Cumbria Way. We were blessed by the fact that there were no campers out there, so we saw the open meadows. And mm. It was a very agricultural scene we saw, and we were, the woodlands were fresh with the sense of spring, and the, the fells were clear. So everything about it was buoyant and encouraging and warm, and we were in good company. Lovely to hear uh, Paddy's, um, that, that challenge we gave him to describe each of the uh, long-distance paths in one word. He managed to get a few more in, but... <laughs> that sounds like Paddy to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, our regular housekeeping, then. If you've enjoyed today's episode, there are 51 previous podcasts at www.countrystride.co.uk. You can find us on social... On Facebook and Twitter at Country Stride One. Please do follow us there. Loads of photos from the walk and also maps as well if you want to go and rewalk our steps in the future. If you like what we do, please do give us a five star review on your podcast provider of choice. That helps us sweep up the algorithms. Uh, and next up, Mark, we've got a, a few lined up now. Oh, yes, we. Looking for damsons in the Lyth Valley, I believe. And then we've got Norman Nicholson. We've got a busy summer ahead of us. From us today in Coniston, by Ruskin's wonderful grave here, a few daffodils that somebody's placed there. We're saying goodbye for now. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>